Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Economics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Tobias Rutley, author of The Behavioral Economics of Inflation Expectations, Macroeconomics Meets Psychology, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Inflation expectations, their formation, their predictive accuracy, and their effects on business price setting and household consumption remain one of the great puzzles in macroeconomics. And as inflation returns to the developed world after a decade-long abeyance, understanding them matters more than ever. In this book, Professor Rutley has brought two relatively new disciplines to bear on the study of expectations. In fact, these are tailor-made for the task, behavioural and experimental economics. Tobias Rutley has been Professor of Macroeconomics at the University of Erfurt since 2000. A graduate of the University of Bern, he has worked at the Swiss National Bank, and been a visiting scholar at Harvard, Stanford, and the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. He is the author of three other books and a string of papers, the latest of which is the intriguingly titled One Plus One Equals Two, More or Less. Tobias, welcome to the podcast. Well, Tim, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Well, your book begins by taking the reader through the historical and theoretical background to your research. I'd like to begin by taking a similar step back, and running through a few of the core concepts and history underpinning your work. Okay, so, well, maybe, and it's usually a good uh, a good starting point to, to talk a little bit about the history of the field, and um, particularly when we, uh, particularly concerning the, the history of uh, expectations theories, in economics. I think a good starting point here is Irving Fisher, uh, because in the 1920s, when economics turned uh, more formal and the models developed became explicitly dynamic, uh, people uh, started to have to develop uh, views about expectations. Well, dynamic models are clearly models in which time uh, plays an explicit role. And in financial economics, and uh, quickly in the developing field of macro as well, there was uh, a need for thinking about humans. Well, for example, lenders and borrowers uh, looked into the future. So Fisher, of course, uh, had his no had this notion uh, of how nominal interest rates move with inflation, because well, for one thing. Uh, lenders want to be compensated for the loss in a purchasing power. Okay? So uh, when Fisher was a statistical man as well, not only a theorist, that, that's, that made him unique at the time. Today, this is like, I think, the standard mixture. He wanted to test his hypotheses, so he needed an explicit uh, model of inflation expectations. And clearly, well, because clearly it's not it's not actual or current. It's not a running inflation that uh, uh, agents interacting to determine the normal interest rate rely on. It's uh, instead it's what they foresee for the future, for the course 
uh, of of the contract that they're uh, agreeing on. Now, Fisher's, F- Fisher, okay, had this notion that people uh, wait past inflation, okay, past inflation rates to form an idea about uh, future inflation. Now, this is clearly what we call extrapolation. Yes, and and Fisher's now turning to his findings, which is intriguing. Uh, he was led to the conclusion, in well, modeling expectations, as I said, he came to the conclusion that the history of inflation rates that people rely on when forming expectations, that they go back decades, in fact, 20 or more years for the U.S. and the U.K. So clearly, and even to, to Fisher himself, this, this is a bit odd, okay, this very long lag. A further point that Fisher documented was that with all trying, he did not find what he thought, what he thought he should find, but he did not find a one-to-one relationship between expected inflation and bond rates. Uh, he barely, in fact, he barely found an effect. And, and this is what even recent research for many other countries, the U.S. and for other countries, has found. Okay? In particular, the strong form of the Fisher proposition, this idea of a one-to-one relationship, uh, is typically not found, and I think this is a this is a very strong, uh, a severe problem and a challenge. Now uh, back to the history of the field. Now there, of course, there were some refinements to the standard model of extrapolative expectations after Fisher in the nineteen fifties and sixties, but all this was essentially swept away with the arrival of rational expectations. Okay, when. When Muth, when John Muth introduced his notion of rational expectations in the early 60s, this, say, over 15 years, it just became uh, the dominant paradigm. To, well, to economists seeing behavior as steered by optimization, it seemed the only way to proceed. Okay? It seemed like a straightforward way to theorize. Now, you recall that rational expectations assumes that agents use all available relevant information and they, that they understand the connections between uh, variables, just as well, in fact, just as well as theorists do. So uh, it's clearly a radical hypothesis. Yet, now, although quickly rising to prominence in economics, uh, there were reservations uh, raised against rational expectations rather quickly, and, and these reservations came from people like Herbert Simon, people with an affinity uh, to psychology. Okay? Given that information processing takes time and energy, okay, which we have a limited amount of, human behavior is guided by heuristics, by simplifications. And, uh, well... Turning then to tests, okay, where where did rational expectations go? Well, of course, it hit uh, empirical tests. So both uh, empirical analyses with uh, survey data, okay, extensively done, and tests in the lab were mostly negative, largely negative to rational expectation. It just appears that you know the Muthian notion, although radical and and you know, in, in many ways consistent, is a poor descriptive account of how uh, humans form expectations. But, I mean, it's it's still 
you know, rational expectation is still being used. And it, it was actively used, you know, at the turn of the century. But I think the financial crisis of, of, uh, of 2007 marked a turn away from expectations, okay? More and more researchers, I think first in, in financial economics, started to turn back to uh, the notion of extrapolation well, on the on the idea that maybe okay the radical turn uh, most radical turn had thrown out the baby with the bathwater. So well, clearly that's not uh, that's undeniable. Okay, old style uh, extrapolative expectations had its problems. Okay, one critical point was that it appeared to imply a long run a long term trade off between inflation and unemployment so that that sat uh, not well with theorists what, what why was that specifically with extrapolative expectations well, be- because the sort of extrapolation that in particularly in uh, Kagan and Nurloff uh, had which were later versions of of, of Irving Fisher's uh, they had infinite lags. Okay, so it took a really long time, essentially forever. Okay, uh, for expectations to adjust. So that's that's one of that's one of the reasons, and and that clearly is at odds with what people you know believe that many people even today believe there's short run uh, real effects uh, from monetary policy, but essentially the idea that there's really persistent. Everlasting effects, even if they get small, that's 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 too hard to swallow. Now, uh, but even w- with these problems of extrapolation, okay, there's more and more. There were more and more findings from the side of psychology, experimental studies, and economics that is really the past, simply the past of a series that what well, is what people rely on when they form their view about the future of this series, okay? I mean, that, that was tested again and again. So th- the question then really came to be, how does extrapolation really work? And, you know, here I propose it's basically pattern, okay? Patterns, the recognition and extrapolation of time series patterns are key to understanding, to a modern understanding of extrapolation. Yeah, and and you you seem to have departed from other research programs in this field by establishing cognitive science the foundation of your study. Is is was that was that very new, or had other people done this before? Well, I mean, ideas from from psychology or, or information processing, you know, along the ways of Simon have been with with economics for the last well fifty years, uh, but uh, and and. Clearly, experimentation uh, ha- has been part of the of the study of expectations as well. But you know, uh, there's a, there's very it's very difficult to to uh, to go a different way and and start from different principles. So, it well, that's what I chose to do. I think uh, a way to look at this is to just say that rational expectations, okay, the standard version is is a is a top-down model of rationality. Okay, it's it starts with assumptions, and it comes from from the top. Now, what what I'm proposing here 
is a bottom-up model of rationality, well, rationality of expectations. Well, and, and a bottom-up means you f- we first study individual behavior in the lab and then build up from, from that data, okay? Well, I, I see one convincing way that, that maybe helps uh, economists uh, put these things into perspective like this, this new pattern-based approach of expectations with Moose's rational expectations. And, and uh, it's, it's the scheme that Daniel Kahneman has proposed, which I, I find uh, very helpful here. I mean, Kahneman talks about uh, a system one and a system two of rationality, I think. Uh, you, you know that, his book, okay? And, and, well, system one is automatic and fast, Okay, and system two is analytic and slow, and clearly they're complementary. So, my pattern-based expectations, okay, uh, they represent the system one side. Okay, this is what I th- that that's what I claim. This is what we use in everyday situations to form expectations. Okay, including expectations. It, it's just the dominant force. It's the it's the everyday mechanism. Now, you know, rational expectations of the Muthian form. I I I, I would uh, put this on the system two. Okay, thinking. So, say in times of very significant changes, I don't see them right now. But for example, um, at at uh, at the end of a hyperinflation. Okay. And there is a new government, there's a broad coalition that brings in ideas uh, in terms of, of uh, uh, different uh, fiscal and monetary policies. I mean, people might well uh, have the incentive to analytically think, think through things. And so Thomas Sargent may be right, okay, that at these times, Inflation expectations are not just extrapolative. It may be you may uh, affect people's thinking in sit in in stark situations like that. But again, I claim this is the rare exception. Okay, typically we don't we don't use our time to do this sort of exercise. So, so yeah, yeah. So yeah. So could you? Uh, could you take us through the design and implementation of the experiment and that you basically operated to, to, to look into this and explain how this is different from previous work? Okay. So, well, let me just well, summarize this with, with you know, some basic ideas, okay? Uh, well, and maybe start with what we already know, what other people have found. People have found about extrapolation. So, first of all, uh, the evidence uh, is clear today that people, okay, humans just look at a few data points. Um, economists and psychologists have found that again and again. So, it's it's a if we turn to inflation expectations. So, what, let's say one year ahead, inflation expectations is basically the last three or four years of data that people rely on when forming these expectations. So. You know, Fisher's notion with twenty or so years—that's clearly wrong. Okay, that's that's fundamentally wrong. Okay. So uh, a second important point is that uh, well, people rely on visual 
visual displays of data. Okay? We are just evolutionary wired to see and assess situations, patterns, shapes. Okay, it has it has high survival value. Okay, that's what we're hardwired to, to be able to do that fast, quickly, and most of the time, you know, beneficially for us. Now, if we talk a bit about the, the laboratory procedures, well, well, here we just something that that you know in presentations uh, has come up in many seminars that what we do is we just we just pay a flat fee, okay? In 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 many of the procedures we have a flat fee. Now this contrasts with much of what experimentalists, particularly in economics, do. Now there, people insist that subjects get paid for their performance. Okay, so forecast performance that would be in my in my uh, realm. So in, in my view, this is here. This is not the right way to go. For well, because for one thing, expectations one year ahead can be checked against the actual outcome only in one year. Okay, this is clearly a very a very different you know, factual feedback from reality than experimentalists implement in the lab, okay? But sure, you can measure how expectations change over time in the lab with instantaneous feedback. But, but I claim this is something entirely different from expectations in the wild, okay? I'm not I'm not interested in, in, in that, okay? Now, by, by contrast or, you know, a complementary argument by, by, you know, the procedures run here are really much closer to the survey of expectations run by many institutions around the world. Okay, like you know, for example, the Michigan Survey of Consumers. Uh, and uh, well, none of these none of these surveys pays respondents for their accuracy. Okay, typically there is no payment at all. Okay? But still, many in the field you know, theorists. And, and uh, policymakers take the survey data of expectations uh, seriously, okay? and I think for good reasons. In that respect, I mean, is this not similar to the contrast between expectation surveys done by market professionals who do have an incentive to get it right and just asking consumers, as you say, like in the, in the Michigan survey? So one of them has an incentive to be right and the other can just give their opinion. Is is that not a similar experiment between being paid and not being paid? Well, I think that's that's a, 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 a that's a difficult question because, well, for one thing, I mean, I think if I recollect correctly, the uh, the predictive accuracy, say, of the survey of professional forecasters is not better than the Michigan survey data. So, uh, well, honestly, I think if you get people to, if you motivate people by being by uh, you know, by being honest and interested in in what the, in what in their views about the world, and if you get them enlisted to do something, they typically do something. You know, to the best of their knowledge. I mean, that's my world or human view in that mm. respect. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes you know, if I if I in seminars, I I I come back with the with the question. So you don't ask people for directions in in in, in when you come in a new city, because presumably mm. they they just tell you nonsense. Well. I don't. I don't agree. Sometimes people don't fully know their own city, but you know they they try they try to be helpful. So. Yeah, yeah. 
And 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 I so you 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 in the experiment you uh, to, to clarify to listeners, these were students with a background in economics you chose and. Yeah, can you just take it, take us through the number of people, the time that they had to devote to the uh, to the experiment, yeah. and so on? Well, I mean, a, a basic run of this experiment is done with say with f- about fifty uh, student subjects, and they all uh, they had a back, they had a basic education in macro, so they know what a CPI is or a GDP and things like that, and. Um, well, and we repeat, uh, we we repeat these runs. So we have them with the same with the same instructions. Have done them at, at different times. But in fact, I will come back to that. In fact, in different countries, it's now not with that inflation expectation, but with pattern based expectations. And well, years ago, I did a study uh, with exactly the same setup, and we did it here in Germany and in Japan, where two countries that clearly have very different cultures and histories and in terms of subjective expectations okay the mean the mean of these answers for each uh, for each pattern is just the same so it it appears that you know that's that's that may just be a, a psychological universal you know pattern uh, pattern extrapolation and with the, with the Japanese similar in only looking back over say four years rather right, than right, right. Always, Really, that's interesting. Well, well, you know, there's one uh, interesting quirk with or uh, the difference between the two. We had we had a question on uh, what we call higher order expectations, where you ask people, "What do you think the average of people here today? Where do they see this the course of events going?" Okay. Now, uh, these higher order expectations, of course, Keynes was a great fan of of them. I've never found tried uh, quite eagerly. Uh, to, to make use of them, but an interesting thing, if we, if you look at the Japanese and the German data, uh, we find differences there. Okay, so like I mean, uh, the Japanese think of themselves as uh, as more reserved, okay, as more conservative, but they're actually not. And the Germans think of themselves as more as as uh, as, as, as 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 extremer. Where, where in fact they're just the same as the Japanese. So it's like the thinking about how how the collective works that differs. But in in terms of how the collective works, there's no difference. So I, I think that was in fact that led me on a long way of of newer studies, where I'm now you know interested in in cultural uh, in cultural aspects of economics. Mm. Well, I mean, we just uh, touched on some of the results. What, what, what else did you learn from the uh, from the outcome of the experiment? Well, uh, well, the first thing, or maybe that's not the central, but it's interesting. That, of course, uh, you know, there's heterogeneity. People extrapolate uh, patterns differently. So, in fact, well, what we do is we bring we bring people into the lab. We show them. Uh, a series, of, well, in fact, an encompassing set of stylized uh, patterns, which are which are you know uh, price level patterns, and we ask them for one year and five year ahead uh, expectations. And well, of course, as I said, there's heterogeneity, so people do that differently. But you know, interestingly, that is also the basis for. Uh, for, for being able then to model 
heterogeneity of expectation. That's one of the outcomes. We can compute time series of heterogeneity of expectations. Okay. Now, if if we look at at the means, okay, for, let's say for for each uh, short pattern of the time series. Now, I think one of the key findings, you know, that's a, a key point to remember, is that there are really uh, very stark differences between how people extrapolate patterns with a clearly tr- with a clear trend in the series, okay, as opposed to patterns with a broken trend or even a plateau pattern, okay. So, uh, the older notion of extrapolation uh, clearly is off the mark. In fact, well, we can't we can't specify a linear model to uh, track these experimental data. Okay? That's, I think that's a, that's a key finding. And, um, well, the effects that I just talked about, they're also present in, in the heterogeneity. Okay, so, f- for example, in, in times of clearly trending prices, heterogeneity of expectation, that's not a big surprise, Uh is lower than in times where, you know, with broken trends and, and things like that. And further, we also have a probabilistic version, okay? There's a procedure where I elicit uh, uncertainty of uh, expectations, and, and that uh, can be modeled as well. Now, uh, well, maybe that's an, a, a further point that uh, listeners might find interesting. Uh, well, which which goes back to what I said before. Uh, there's no there's no effect of doing this in different times with different people. In fact, with different cultures. And just uh, looking at, uh, toward the, the, the next step of where uh, this is being taken, this is really important because uh, this makes the basis, uh, or or provides the basis for using this lab data to quantify a model of expectations that can be used, yeah, well, basically everywhere, okay, for all countries, for all historical periods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you incorporated these results and your research program into a, into a pattern-based theory of extrapolative, uh, extrapolative expectations. Could you talk us through that, please? Well, okay, I mean, uh, that's a key part in the book, and... Um, what we do is we take the answers of our subjects uh, uh, to this comprehensive comprehensive uh, set of circumstances, and then we combine it with historical CPI data for any country. Now, clearly, how does this work? Well, uh, first of all, it works on the assumption, okay, now making the step from the lab data to historical series of expectations, this... Uh, uh, stands on, on 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 the fundament of assuming that people in other places and other times just function as our subjects function in the lab. Okay, so that's that's a clearly the basic notion. Then uh, we proceed by taking actual short sequences of the of the historical CPI for a given country, and and fit the laboratory data onto uh, this historical series. Okay. So for this purpose, we have to clarify at each step which of the stylized patterns, okay, uh, with their expectations measured in the lab is actually relevant. Now, 
the answer here is that it's a weighted mixture of expectations where the answers to uh, stylized patterns are weighted according to the similarity of the stylized patterns with the actual historical theories. Okay, so that's uh, that's what I call similarity matching, and I think it's it's quite well explained in the book. And there's there's one more important element. Uh, uh, when taking uh, the, the lab data to historical data, we have to scale okay, the lab data to actual steps in inflation. So in the lab, we have steps of inflation of plus minus 1% and 0%. But clearly out there, uh, there are cases where you know inflation is higher or lower. So we have to scale uh, the, the, the lab data. And uh, well... When this full procedure, two-step procedure, is applied, we can calculate historical series for one year ahead and five year ahead expectations, and you know, in addition, series, you know, similar series of heterogeneity and the uncertainty of of inflation expectation. Well, let me just note that uh, in, in contrast, maybe that's the right moment to say that again or emphasize again. Uh, we use the lab, but the lab is done is used here just to run uh, a sur- once only survey under control conditions. So we do not test hypothesis in the lab. So that's uh, that's a key difference to you know normal experimental economics. Uh, but then, of course, you know uh, we want to. To use these data and use the uh, the, the full fledged inflation models to uh, to explain imp- interesting things. So the test comes now. Okay, it comes when we put these uh, time series of inflation expectation or inflation uncertainty into econometric uh, specifications, where we know that inflation or its un- inflation expectations or its uncertainty should uh, play an important role hmm. yeah have there have there been uh, have there been applications like that well there's a number i mean like half of the book is yeah. is, is is about all this so let's just turn back to uh, well uh, to to fisher's uh, you know make the connection to what we talked about at the beginning fisher's hypothesis uh, regarding the uh, the relationship between expected inflation and interest rates, uh, when we use the pattern based uh, inflation expectations model, we find much stronger support uh, for for this hypothesis than in earlier studies, and and this applies to a set of different countries and time periods. So, including for the U.S., where the findings have not been strong at all for in many studies. And even if we look at the puzzling period uh, between the Civil War and, and the First World War, where, you know, prices first decline and then uh, increase. So um, it also applies to, uh, there's a chapter on high inflation countries, okay? And it's, it's, a, good, it's, a, it's a good model there for Explaining the course of nominal rates there as well, and there's this, there's there's two uh, chapters that cover five, separately five Asian and and five African economies, and there's much more evidence in favor and oftentimes for the, the strong version of of the uh, the Fisher uh, curve. So 
you know, my proposition is if done correctly, it appears really that the notion that uh, interest rates move one one to one with expected inflation has much more merit than many people came to believe. But uh, well, uh, maybe that brings us closer <laughs> to, to, to the second point, talking about about how inflation expectations affect inflation itself. Well, uh, maybe that brings us to to a discussion then of uh, of, of current policy issues. But uh, maybe not. But uh, well, talking about the Phillips curve, you know, clearly we we know that. I mean, there's a few people I think in the field would deny that. Inflation expectations for one one or another reason. Okay, of course the approaches differ here. Uh, has has a key effect on the course of inflation itself. And here the pattern based expectations again when we implement it in in these specifications. Okay, uh, these specifications fare better than other me- than with other measures of expectations. Okay. Now, uh, if, if we want to turn to 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 current inflation, well, maybe yeah, yeah, I I would like to I'd like to talk about a couple of areas where your work applies directly to current policy or the current policy environment. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly with inflation rising now, uh, I think. Uh, the surge in inflation from from the perspective of of this approach is likely to persist for some time okay uh, certainly from the side of inflation expectations this is now this is a time pattern in most countries that I've looked at where you would say okay uh, infl- inflation expectations are 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 increasing okay so uh I think uh, this this will take a, f- a few years to bring down. Now, uh, how does how does all that relate to things that that I think are important, like the you know older views, like the, the, the quantity theory of money? I think uh, the the Phillips curve is a key is is just one element in in a modern uh, view of the quantity theory, and maybe uh, listeners uh, would gain. Reading my my working paper, I just to note that I have a working paper. It's called the Eight and a Half Equations version of the Quantity Theory of Money. Okay, it gives an account of how these uh, things fit together. I'll add a link to that on the uh, on the blog post. Oh, oh great, great. Hmm. Well, uh, but before well, we come back to uh, to a few points on policy uh, again, but let me. Uh, uh, Right here, say something about uh, what this this approach, this once only approach of doing a survey, uh, it has it. Not only is it it's a good, it's a good, uh, it's a, an alternative to rational expectation of the Muthin type, but it's a clear, it's a clear, you know, contender. It's a challenger to to surveys of expectations. Well, for one thing, you just do it once, okay. You take people to the lab, you do it once. And then with the model that goes with it, with the modeling steps, okay, we can compute inflation expectations for periods where where there were no surveys. Okay, that, that's clearly, I think, a, a, a big gain. And 
Well, first, since it's a model, it's not just a measurement, okay? It can also be used for what-if-like uh, type scenarios, okay? We can simulate how pattern-based expectations would, uh, would proceed uh, under different uh, policy scenarios. Yeah. So... Um you you do discuss how the uh, the these ideas can be um, applied to areas beyond inflation. Can you talk us through those? Well, uh, there's a, there's a chapter. Well, that, that was really important for me uh, to like to to uh, investigate the context dependence of that type of pattern extrapolation. And w- one way to go is like. We did all what I explained. We did that with real GDP uh, again. Okay, so we have uh, the data elicited. We have the models fitted for uh, real GDP expectations. Again, for the mean, heterogeneity, and, and as well as uncertainty. And that type of, of well, the, uh, income or aggregate income expectations are important or interesting because uh, that data can inform discussions like why did the uh, the Great Recession last that long? And and my take on it, uh, looking at the data, is that by contrast to other analysts, my my take on this is that it's really uh, the mean of expectations and not uncertainty that has uh, kept the recovery back for, for such a long time uh, in, between, say, uh, 2010 and 2014. Well, uh, if you if you uh, allow me to uh, to talk to, to to policy implications, okay. So uh, let's let's focus again uh, on inflation expectations because th- I think these are the more the more the more critical topic here. Um, one one uh, implication where I depart from what many people see and believe is uh, in terms of uh, the notion uh, whether uh, inflation targeting has you know major uh, gains that go with them. So, for example, people believe that. Well, they have given analysis, supporting analysis, that um, inflation targeting helps to anchor long, long-term expectations. And, and the UK is often used here as as uh, as evidence, and it's shown that uh, long-term inflation expectations dropped strongly after after the UK uh, assumed. Uh, Inflation targeting, informal inflation targeting. Now, when I run with with UK data, my inflation model, I can track that decline in five year ahead inflation expectations just as well, and it's just backward looking inflation. Inflation came down, not in a linear way. Again, a linear extrapolation model would not show that, but they came down because inflation itself came down. And the difference between the the UK and the, and the US, okay, in terms of how over that time, remember the US has had no no such uh, inflation target at the time. That difference is that difference between these two 
countries can be uh, tracked by pattern-based expectations. So, so you know, the, the, the same thing, uh, the same basically negative uh, verdict, in my view, holds for forward guidance. I think it's, it's, uh, it's a dead end. Okay, I think, well, I think facts, inflation facts speak, not words. If you want to keep inflation expectations low, you have to keep inflation low, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting to say that because obviously forward guidance has been really central to the policy of several central banks, including particularly the European Central Bank over the last 10 years. You, 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 you think it's been pretty ineffective? I mean, the effective part of policy has been the uh, the setting of of exceedingly <laughs> low interest rates, and uh, clearly, uh, you can affect uh, the stock market by saying this or that. Okay, and you'd rather say things that do not uh, induce perturbance on the stock market. But in terms of how inflation uh, developed, I think it had little or no effect. <laughs> Interesting. Well, well maybe uh, another point, though, looking more at at the historical part, you know, um, so in, in the book, there's uh, I, a computer example, real rates, real interest rates for, for different uh, countries for the periods in the 1980s uh, with uh, disinflation, okay? And when we look at at the uh, at at the real interest rate from the Bank of England in the Thatcher years, okay, the Bank of England for as an average between 1980 and 84, it documents a real interest rate of three point so seven percent. Okay, now uh, I my measure shows six point six percent, and I think this okay makes much more plausible. The contractionary impulse of monetary policy at the time. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, just before we uh, wind up, um, you, you you identify three areas in which the data and concepts in this book can be can be used. Can can you go through those? Well, I mean, really, the easiest way to to use the book is. Uh, the approach is that there is a number of countries and historical periods where I list expected inflation, okay, together with the heterogeneity of inflation. So, for example, due to great database uh, of the Bank of England, there is a table showing short and long run inf- inflation expectations going as far back as 1702. Okay, uh, and similarly, there are a series of expected inflation for ten major economies, together with estimates of real rates of interest using this new procedure. And I think these data are rather promising, uh, in particular for economic historians. Now, uh, if you want to go one step further, uh, you can use the lab data and the programs. They're all on, on the website of the publisher of Cambridge University Press to calculate your own estimates of expected inflation, current and past, for any country you would like. And, and these programs are not, you know, they're just Excel sheets. So this is really this is really simple. You should be able to get going very quickly. Uh, and the final thing is, 
Well, you could use the lab instructions if you don't believe in in, <laughs> in my data. You could you could use the lab instructions to run the elicitation procedures in different countries and with people of different backgrounds. Well, in fact, I hope to be doing some of this work over the next two years myself, investigating, for example, whether subjects and countries with you know explicit inflation targeting perform differently. Well, extrapolate differently. Well, I rather guess not, but mm. <laughs> I would like to see the data. Mm. That's the subject for the next book, I guess. Maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, as, since this is a podcast about books, uh, as is customary, I've asked my guest to recommend a couple, one from his field and one one personal choice. So, uh, Tobias, what have you chosen? Well, I've, I've been looking uh, quite around quite a bit. But in terms of economics, I, uh, I would uh, recommend the book of my main uh, thesis advisor from Bern, Jörg Niehans. And I think it's already a bestseller, has been for years. It's his book, A History of Economic Theory, Classic Contributions, 1720 to 1980. So it doesn't cover the last 20 years, but for anyone looking for a course, uh, concise and, and, and analytic treatment of the history of economics, I think this is this is really a great book. And the personal choice, again, I had difficulties choosing here, but uh, I think for his ability to uh, put things in word at the edge or at the edges of our experience, uh, I would go with Raymond Carver and rather for his collected stories, but, you know, his poems are mm. are just great. Right. Interesting contrast. Um, well, today I've been talking to Tobias Ridley about his book, The Behavioral Economics of Inflation Expectations, published by Cambridge. Tobias, thanks again for coming on. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you very much.